Welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason often collide. They certainly meet. I'm Doug Keck. Always glad to meet you here at the Mothership where it all began in 1981. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ewtn.com. That's where we are with Spitzer's Universe. Check out all of Father Spitzer's website, themagiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and spitzercenter.org as well. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel, EWTN On Demand page. And while you were there on our On Demand page, check out The Man of the Shroud. Oh, Father would like this one. Documentary examines one oh, yeah. of the most revered, miraculous, and debated pieces of cloth, the Shroud of Turin, uncovering new insights into the death and resurrection of Jesus. See this amazing program for free, and it is on demand, which means 24-7. You can watch it on your iPad, on your phone, your home computer, or on your smart TV as well, and that would be a smart thing to do. And, we, of course, we've got our topic for today based on Father's wonderful book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, available now through our EWTN Religious Catalog, as always. And with that, I also want to mention our other great book, the Book of the Month from EWTN Publishing, The Roots of Christian Civilization, First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by a very just and ordered Dominican, Father Brian Malady. So check that book out as well. And with that, we're going to turn to our laughing Mr. Universe out there on the West Coast. It's always good to see you happy. How are you doing? I'm doing great, doing great, and all the happier to hear your wonderful thoughts about the just Father Milady. He's great. So. <laughs> he is great. And he, he's one of our open line hosts, too, so we want to salute him. And, of oh, course, yeah. if you kick things off on this program with your prayer, that would be great, but, Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry, our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. Even the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. So uh, let's get uh, before we get into the topic. As a couple of uh, stories, one of these ones I know people think we maybe talk about too much, but it, it is so important with what's going on today, and you know it's something that you feel strongly about. And I, I just wanted to. It was an article uh, actually came off of uh, Fox News, but it says doctors from nine countries mm. warn U.S leaders exaggerate benefits and minimize risks of youth gender transition, which of course we've been talking about. Yeah. And that goes on to say doctors from France, the UK, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Belgium, Switzerland, South Africa, and even some from the United States have signed a joint letter to the editor in a Wall Street Journal Friday warning the American medical leaders, such as something called the Endocrine uh, Society, uh, president uh, mm -hmm. are dangerously cavalier on this issue. Uh, the doctors were responding to a letter in the Wall Street Journal that disputed the claim that 2,000 studies confirm gender-affirming care improves the well-being of transgender and gender-diverse people and reduces the risk of suicide. The doctors go on to say, uh, emphasize that the American, that America is an anomaly on this issue. 
and more and more European countries and international professional organizations now recommend psychotherapy, gee, what a surprise, rather than hormones and surgeries yeah. at the first line of treatment for gender dysphoric youth. So that just reinforces everything you've been saying for the last couple of months. Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, what they're talking about is that the uh, U.S. surveys that have been used uh, to substantiate these bogus results are all short-term surveys. Mm -hmm. And as I have said uh, several times, and which now all these European countries are recognizing, is that those um, uh, short-term results are very deceptive. People have feelings of uh, well-being immediately after the surgery. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. And, and uh, they, in fact, up to two years after the surgery, uh, there's almost a sense of euphoria that everything they've ever wanted has come to fruition. However, after that point, there is a significant decline. And it goes all the way till 10 years after the surgery. And, uh, and this also applies to gender-affirming uh, uh, hormones without um, a surgery, mm -hmm. all of a sudden the decline begins to occur and it occurs very rapidly so that, you know, 10 to 15 years after the surgery, uh, that's when you get the 20 times increase in suicide rates. And this should not be thought uh, to be happening only in Europe. It's not only in Europe. It's in the United States. The same statistics apply. So this is not just in Sweden and the Netherlands and, and uh, uh, Great Britain and so forth. This is definitely in the United States. Those surveys and those studies that are being used uh, to back up uh, the, the feelings of uh, well-being occurring after mm -hmm. a sexual reassignment surgery and gender-affirming therapy are only short-term studies. This, they're bogus studies because anybody can tell you in any survey or any study, if you have something that's less than 10 years with respect to after effects, right, mm -hmm. which is very key to a good study, you need longitudinal studies as well as lots of objective participants to make sure that they're double blind, to make sure that the results are not being biased or skewed, and you want objective data like actual suicide statistics. Mm -hmm. In the U.S. studies, they're asking people that's like, hey, how do you feel after your surgery? And of course, the person who just got it and thinks it's the answer to all his needs says, oh, I feel great about it. Thanks so much. Now, that's an opinion. However, when you commit suicide, we call that a hard fact. Or when your mortality rate increases by three times, which it will within 10 years, it will increase three times. So, uh, you know, that's a hard fact when you die early. So mm -hmm. the, the, the fact is those statistics are being just pushed aside. And as the Europeans are telling us, very cavalierly, uh, the U.S. medical establishment is just plowing through mm -hmm. with a strategy of, you know, not only death and suicide, but ex they're not reporting either after 10 years what the depression and anxiety statistics are. But you can imagine right. how they're just going through the ceiling if you look at the suicide statistics. Right. So, uh, you know, I rest my case. Absolutely. These studies, anything that's not longitudinal, anything that's not based on hard facts like uh, deaths or suicides, but instead are asking very subjective opinion poll questions, are very bogus surveys. And so for all intensive purposes, 
follow, I hate right. to say this, I, you know, follow the Europeans. Right. I mean, they're being well, objective about well, this, and we are being political right. in isn't our medical establishment. Interesting, on every other study that they like, they love Sweden's studies, they love these Finland studies, anytime mm -hmm. it has something that they're promoting. <laughs> <laughs> and even there, they ignored the fact that these are much smaller countries, uh, which are much, much more homogeneous societies than what you're dealing with in the United States. Mm -hmm. But they're happy to quote these things. Yeah. Uh, on this, a little different. Oh, yeah. it, it strikes me in some ways, based yeah. on the articles you see out there these days, I think the thing that's going to turn it around is lawsuits. I just think that more and more people who, are, who felt as if they were taken advantage of or basically uh, mutilated and abused uh, are suing doctors and hospitals over these things, and and I hate to say it, but in the United States, that's the way people change things. Well, I'm afraid to say, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, what's going to happen is we can see uh, right now that there's a strong likelihood that the lawsuits are going to be really uh, prolific, and mm -hmm. in addition to that, I think you're going to have a, a movement where people as a whole feel that the medical establishment has not only let them down, mm -hmm. but when they see all of the studies available from Europe that show wow. conclusively what the hard data over the long term is saying, they're going to say mm -hmm. that our U.S. medical establishment should have known better. Right. And they should have looked not only at the European studies, but the U.S.'s own statistics. They are just glossing over everything, and so uh, right. you can... Uh, um, uh, pretty much be sure that the lawsuits are coming and that the tort lawyers are going to be on the side of these victims right. and they are indeed victims because in order to sort of have the medical establishment satisfy uh, the uh, political order they're using these people as, right. as I think true victims right. in order to somehow uh, you know uh, get a, uh, you know uh, this this thing passed forever and for for always but I will tell you right now forever and for always isn't going to happen. The data is just overwhelming on what a bad idea it is for the poor victims that are going to be besieged by it uh, going into the future. Right, and, and obviously with, all, with so much of the stuff even recently coming out of COVID, now recently, I, I think it might be the FDA, I might be wrong, but I think they came back and statistically said that 30% of the people who quote unquote died of COVID did in fact not die of COVID that they overestimated yeah, but the or cold, assigned yeah, yeah. the actual death as being mm -hmm. COVID 30% more than actually died from COVID. They might have had COVID, as everybody said through That's during right. the thing, but they died of some other underlying, which virtually at that time had nothing to do with the fact that they might have been testing positive for COVID. Yeah, that's right. And mm -hmm. the comorbidities associated with COVID were far more uh, deleterious to health uh, than actually COVID was, mm -hmm. but you know maybe COVID might have pushed it over the edge a little bit, but but really they died right. of the comorbidity uh, with COVID, maybe as a, a stimulus that right. uh, made it happen sooner than it might have. But you're right. Yeah, I think people felt for a long time too that the statistics were exaggerated, and the reason was simple: that cardiac um, uh, patients, for example, uh, cardiac deaths uh, plummeted 
during the time when COVID deaths were elevated. Right. Uh, hmm. Gee. Let's see. Is it normal to have a 30% uh, decline in cardiac deaths in two years and then uh, corresponding exactly to the rise in COVID deaths and then suddenly resume its normal statistical base after the COVID crisis is over? Um, I think there might be a correlation going right. on here. And so I think a few of the cardiac cases got reclassified as COVIDs just because of a coincidence right. in time. Exactly. Okay. And that, that, and unfortunately, it's very bad because we, we, we always had faith in our medical establishment and between the COVID and the, and the lab yeah. theory and now what's going on with the transgender, there just seems to be, you know, people are starting to notice that all the news shows are basically sponsored by pharmaceutical companies and it's... Uh, <clears throat> makes you yeah, a little suspect yeah. <laughs> of their ability to be uh, objective. Here's, here's another uh, great line here uh, dealing with what's going on in the United States. Uh, uh, the military has a sacred obligation to abort babies. I mean, that's a bit of an overstatement, but the White House has declared abortion a sacred obligation. National Security Spokesman John Kirby made the comments during a Monday press conference where he claimed <laughs> individuals who serve in the military have a f right to federal funding for abortion and he was asked why is the DOD policy on abortion critical to medical re uh, military readiness Kirby responded by defending the Pentagon's promotion of abortion as a sacred obligation that the federal government has to female service members and transgender individuals who qualify and I don't have the information directly here but I think another thing that was interesting that came out of this is that if you want to if if one of if your father or mother dies you get three days off but you have to use your time off and you have to pay your own expenses. But if you want to have an abortion, you have up to three weeks that is, doesn't come out of your PTO yeah. time, so to speak, in the military, and they pay for your transportation and housing. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, talk about politically motivated. I, I rest my case, but to call it a sacred obligation, mm -hmm. I mean, sacred? Uh, he chose that term for whatever reason, mm -hmm. but sacred, it is not. Right. It is the most anti-sacred thing you can possibly imagine. And when you see ironies of this great depth, <laughs> you know, you have to think to yourself, uh, what is this guy uh, uh, but a sophist mm -hmm. at, at, at the peak of his career? I mean, he's, he's no better than an aimless rhetorician that uses terms so fundamental to the hearts of humankind, to the ideals of humankind. He uses it for his own political advantage to turn the, turn, uh, the term on its head mm -hmm. and actually make sacred into anti-sacred for the sake of his own um, you know, political aims. Right. So, uh, you know, what do I think of this guy? I, I, you know, as Plato would have said a long time ago, nothing more than mere sophistry uttered by a sophistical expert. Mm -hmm. He's nothing more than an empty rhetorician right. who uses sacred terms right. uh, to, uh, to meet his own ends and, and makes them anti-sacred in the process. Yeah, well, 20 years ago, we used to make fun of uh, Baghdad Bob. Uh, it seems like we have our own Baghdad yeah. Bobs here in the United States now. Yeah. Who, you know, uh, as, as those of us are old enough to remember uh, some of his press conferences, what he said was going on yeah. as opposed to the facts of what was really happening. Here's another yeah. story that kind of fits into some of the things we've talked about. USCCB has serious reservations about revising definition of brain death. Now, they, along with the National uh, Catholic Bioethics Center, 
uh, is concerned about mm -hmm. some proposed changes in the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which is called UDA. Um, according mm -hmm. to the statements, the proposed revision of the definition will replace the standard of whole brain death with one of partial brain death. It would change the current language in the UDA from irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem, to permanent loss of brainstem reflexes. Uh, the basis for our mm -hmm. objection, this is the group that's objecting, uh, the USCCB, is that the proposed revision will allow patients who exhibit partial brain function to be declared legally dead when they are not biologically dead, the joint statement continued. And they go on to say later, and nothing in Catholic teaching provides support for this lowering of the criterion for deciding this. And they also point out that while the church is supportive of organ donation, they think this might have the unintended mm -hmm. consequences of making more and more people uh, thinking, I don't want to be an organ donor because I don't want them rushing to decide that it's time to harvest when I'm, I'm not quite gone. Uh, and the letter raises the yeah. concern mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the substitution of the term permanent for irreversible will be used to justify protocols that could directly cause the death of a donor. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the uh, cautions of the USCCB are thoroughly uh, warranted, and, mm -hmm. and um, I, I do think, unfortunately, most doctors would never do that, but the fact that some might uh, would be um, a problem. And if that were the case, we know that even though it is rare uh, that people who have significant loss of um, brainstem function have come out of a coma and, um, you know, exhibited, you know, full brain function uh, after that. It's rare, but the fact that it does happen should alert us to the fact that uh, we shouldn't be rushing um, to, uh, to, to, even for the sake of organ donation, we shouldn't be rushing. We could actually kill a person right. who could turn around and, and live. And um, I, I do think the higher standard is a better standard, even though in some cases it may mm -hmm. mean that an uh, organ is not available within the time frame uh, that people had originally um, uh, thought it might be. So, um, you know, I think eventually the, the organ will be made available. And so the, uh, the idea of rushing uh, to do it, uh, I, I'm surely um, not in favor of this. Like I said, I think there's just too much evidence that um, partial brainstem function mm -hmm. can, be, uh, can be a turnaround case right. and people can regain full consciousness and uh, use of uh, the cerebral cortex afterwards. So I guess my, my thought would be uh, better to be reserved on this matter uh, than non-reserved because once right. you open that door, uh, again, we have seen the slippery slope again and again and again and again. Well, we changed it once. We could just change it a little bit more. We could just say this time that, you know, maybe loss of frontal cortex, partial function, mm -hmm. you know, rather than brain, brain stem. You could just see this thing going, you know, da 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 da. Uh, you know, and um, I'm not saying that that would happen, but uh, do I fear slippery slopes? Yes, right. because they way too frequently occur. And uh, not only do they occur, but much to the the detriment of the, the most vulnerable right. citizens who cannot right. uh, defend themselves. Well, so what's probably I'd scary be in favor is, of the is they're, they're probably trying to catch up uh, with the official statement with what people are probably doing a lot of times already. Uh, and uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the problem yeah. is that, you know, it's not that these people are being all yeah. held back from this. The issue is there's probably more and more because we saw what's going on in Canada 
you know, uh, with euthanasia and things like that, you know. Oh, yeah. It's not yeah. like people are uh, spending yeah. lots of time waiting. There's a lot more of a push to act yeah. quickly. So, anyway. Yeah, uh, well, that may be occurring, but whenever you have some kind of a reservation or restriction that's legal, right. uh, there is much greater hesitancy. Absolutely. And so uh, you're going to, yeah, you but open the, the door, people it'll increase fast for and sure. loose probably feel exposed and would like oh, yeah. to have... Uh, Oh, yeah. You know, them, them being yeah. covered, so to speak. One last thing before we get to the questions, just, uh, you know, again, to, to anybody who's seen Sound of Freedom, you know how great a movie it is. If you haven't seen it, yeah. you should see the movie uh, Sound of Freedom. On uh, It's wonderfully done, wonderfully produced, great story. And the thing that's interesting the mm -hmm. most is, uh, and I don't know how much you've heard about, kind of like the mainstream media's reaction uh, of trying to tar this with some sort of QAnon connection or some other, you know, right-wing conspiracy connection, which isn't true, but even if it was true, it, it wouldn't change the facts that this is a horrible, horrible thing that anybody should be aghast at, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely do not get it. Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, what's wrong with being against sex trafficking? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with trying to expose all the rats that are doing the sex trafficking? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with trying to get some momentum in this country to stop sex trafficking? What are you, what could possibly be wrong with this? Why in the world would this be tagged as a conspiracy that right. should be stopped, that people should not go to a movie that is trying to deal with one of the just the, 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 the ravages of, of, of our century, one of the, the, the mortal shames of our century? Mm -hmm. I mean, why would people want to be uh, uh, aligned with Epstein? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't get it. Right. I mean, I'm just sitting here I'm thinking to myself, am I, am I missing something? Right. You know, and I, I agree with you, Doug. I'm, I'm, I'm mystified. I, right. I, I have no idea why this would be targeted in any way, shape, or form. And, and, and either it is truly uh, stupid or it is incredibly nefarious. Mm -hmm. And if the latter, then that ought to be stopped right. and investigated. Who is, who is doing this? Right. Who is who's making these kinds of charges and accusations? And what are they afraid I'd of? I'd like to know. Right. And what are they afraid of? And please come public. Don't right. fund these little uh, organizations and websites and all kinds of things and then try to remain secret. Right. Proclaim your views from the rooftops. Why not? I mean, after all, you claim you have some kind of moral authority to be against those who are against sex trafficking. Why? Well, you know, the, the, uh, you ought to proclaim it. Tell us why. We're all curious instead of claiming that it's, an, you know, that it's some kind of a, uh, you know, a plot, you know, of the right wing or something right. of that nature. Show us who you are. Show us your motives. And then let us make the determination. But speak, speak truthfully, right. and tell us who you are. Right. Well, he was a liar from the beginning, so I don't know that you're going to get yep. much of an answer. Let's yeah, move on exactly. to some uh, to some questions. Also, there are a lot of people like the movie Nefarious that you use the word nefarious. There's a lot of, a lot of people. Oh, that sorry. That movie was a good one too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you oh, kind of plug uh, that in there uh, unknowingly. There. Uh, uh, yeah, I sure did. <laughs> So let's ask, a uh, person writes to us, Dear Father Spitzer, I watch your show every week. The world is so troubling and frightening for me, it is worrying for my grandchildren. 
I find you to be very reassuring in these times of trouble. Here, here. We all agree. Thank you for giving us this oh. profound gift, Marianne. So. Oh, gee whiz. Thanks, Marianne. Um, I, uh, as I say, uh, uh, I'm just, uh, you know, uh, trying to be a good statistical nerd uh, uh, to uh, at least, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, bring some of the facts to light. And, uh, and, you know, you really do have to burrow into the stats mm -hmm. and the studies. It really does make a big difference. Right. And um, sometimes the political agendas not only ignore them, as we just saw in the last issue, they right. tell the exact reverse of Absolutely. the truth. Absolutely. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, my faith as a Catholic has been tested a lot over the last few years. I left the church as a teen to go to a full gospel church, but came back to the Catholic faith largely due to people like you, Father, and Jimmy Aiken from uh, Catholic Answers, who uh, wow. obviously personally is a fan. A I'm very a, I'm reasonable a, guy I'm, himself. I'm a fan of his <laughs> as well. I attend a Catholic college which teaches many things contrary to the Catholic faith, okay? Why are schools like this allowed to present themselves as Catholic, John? Well, John, you know, like all institutions of significant complexity, as all universities are, you've got professors who really are Catholic. You've got professors who profess to be Catholic, but really don't do anything to harm the Catholic faith. And then you do have professors who are actively trying to harm the Catholic faith. They're trying to undermine not only the moral teaching, but actually uh, the teaching in various doctrines from uh, God to Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult. Uh, in you know, our universities in the United States have a considerable faculty control uh, within uh, the, the various departments. That's part of academic freedom, academic integrity. And so, um, you, know, the, uh, the, you know, the idea of controlling or uh, censoring uh, faculty members is, is frowned upon in, in many respects. Um, you know, and when I was even president of Gonzaga, I had my fair share of debates mm -hmm. on various issues. And uh, but I found the debate format a little bit more, um, uh, you know, a good way of trying to uh, stop a, a bad mm -hmm. uh, momentum rather than uh, trying um, uh, just to suppress it. Although I, in some cases, I had to suppress some things, and I didn't feel bad about it. Happy to debate it in the aftermath. Uh, but I wasn't going to let it happen. Um, now, in some cases, I think presidents, uh, you know, they have different ways of reacting. If they have a, a strong board to back them up, um, presidents will actually back up the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. uh, if they don't have a strong board to back them up, mm -hmm. oftentimes presidents feel very much alone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's very hard for them to sort of take on the world all by themselves and take on a lot of faculty members. But you don't want to just uh, rip out the, the notion of Catholic, um, you know, from, you know, that university's status because there are professors there uh, who are really trying to do a good job. There's also, um, you know, people in the university ministry. But you really have to know uh, how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for those, you know, if you want um, you know, maybe the, the best advice is, is uh, I would say, you know, f try to find a focus group on campus if mm -hmm. you can find one. They oftentimes can direct you to, I shouldn't say this, who's going to be a, a professor right. you want to take. Whose courses who's you going to be take. A professor right. You, right. 
you should take it, who you, you, you might not want to take. And so a focus group can be a great help. Or to go to a good Catholic alumnus of, of, a, of a, a, you know, Catholic university who's mm -hmm. aware of some of the faculty members who can help you to navigate that. Uh, sometimes there are people, uh, you know, who will help you navigate uh, that. If you just say, I don't know anybody, my thought would be I probably wouldn't go to that college. Honestly, I'd go mm -hmm. to a college where you either have the capacity to navigate uh, the various professors who you want to take for especially theology and philosophy. If you can't um, uh, get that, you may want to go to the Newman Guide, um, uh, which is out there of universities that really do have mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a vast majority of the professors are certainly uh, teaching or a mandate from right. the bishop indicating uh, that, although that's not altogether uh, safe either these days, but a mandate uh, is a good thing from the bishop, uh, an approval. So uh, there are certain ways of doing it, and uh, uh, you can, uh, like I said, the Newman Society does have a, a letter that uh, puts those uh, things out. And like I said, if you, if, you're, if you need to go to a big university for various mm -hmm. programs, um, you know, then I would say try to find some alums, try to find a focus group, try to find um, a Catholic professor there who is really uh, trustworthy. Other Catholic professors will tell you really fast, you know, mm -hmm. uh, who, who to avoid, you know, so-and-so is a deconstructionist, so-and-so is a good guy, etc. cetera, uh, and that's probably the best way to do it. But uh, they're allowed to do so uh, principally because you don't want to take away the name Catholic if there are a lot of people there at the university who are trying to forward the Catholic mission, but indeed it is very misleading, mm -hmm. and especially when you go out fundraising uh, you know, for, you know, good uh, alumni and say, you know, we're bringing the Catholic faith and really you, you, you really are not trying to bring the Catholic faith, You're just letting it kind of drift. Uh, that's probably not the best right. thing either. Uh, I think uh, it, the, the board and, and the uh, president should be uh, trying to, to at least deliver true advertising, uh, right. uh, you know, a true product that resembles their advertising. Yeah, we need to keep our eyes on our charism and wh why we started the, this, yeah. this uh, you know, many organizations go from their mission to the mission becoming the survival of the organization. So with that being said. Oh, yeah. Well, if. Go ahead. Yeah. You can say, finish it. No, I was just going to say, if you see that wording in the Catholic mission, instead of right. we are a Catholic university, you see the wording, we are a university in the Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. Don't go to that right, university, exactly. even right. if it has the engineering program you want. There are really good engineering programs at other universities that say, we're right. a Catholic university. And if you're stuck there, just understand, this really isn't Catholic, and you're going to have to treat it like you're at a secular and uh, university yeah. and respond to it just like yep. it was yep. that way. Very good. We're going to take a break. Mm -hmm. So much to talk with Father about as we continue your questions right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to Father Spitzer's Universe Part 2. Don't forget EW10's family celebration. It's free. Saturday, August 26th, right in Birmingham, Alabama, near our studios, not far from Hansville and Mother's Shrine. 
And we've got some great speakers this year. Father Wade Manesis, of course, from Open Line and featured on so many programs. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, always a popular one. Jim and Joy Pinto will be giving a talk as well. Mass with Bishop Stephen Reka, who's our local ordinary here. He's an extraordinary ordinary. And uh, more information, you can register <laughs> EW10.com forward slash family celebration. And again, it's always great for us to see all the people and, uh, and press the flesh. And there'll be authors there and meet and greet. And the priests will all be there. There'll be other people you've seen on the network there as well. So it's always a lot of fun. Father Spitzer graced us with his presence last year when we were in Phoenix, and that was a lot of fun too. With that being said, we'll turn back to Father Absolutely. Spitzer. Uh, another question. Dear Father Spitzer, I was raised Catholic but I'm no longer practicing my faith. I enjoy learning about Catholicism, which is why I really appreciate your program. But I do not feel any urgency to practice my faith. My mother feels like she's failed in my upbringing. upbringing. How can I explain to her that this is on me and not on her? Maybe I'll grow stronger at some point, but not at the present. I hate to see her feeling so bad. Taylor. Well, here's my thought. Um, uh, rather than explaining to your mom about that, uh, may I? Uh, let me just ask this: if, if you basically are feeling an increase in emptiness or alienation or loneliness, you might think, you know, well, I, I really don't feel too bad. I, you know, just when I'm in, um, uh, you know, looking in the mirror, sometimes it feels like nothing's really coming back at me. Mm -hmm. Some days I, I walk out, you know, of of the house and. It just really seems like it's empty and, and dark out there. Sometimes I'm in the midst of my family and, and I just feel so utterly alone, even though I'm surrounded by friends. Um, you know, I, I would just say there's, you know, something missing on the religious level in your life. And here's the one thing is if those things sort of predominate, just really take some direct action to come back into the Catholic Church. I think God is giving you a sign that you need the Holy Eucharist, that you need the Sacrament of Reconciliation. You might think, I really don't need it. I just, you know, I, I just feel okay. Everything seems to be okay. But it, look at the deeper side. Mm -hmm. Look at the times, you know, when you, you're having trouble sleeping. Look at the malaise that sometimes you just wake up in the morning and there's just like, you know, I, I, I don't even care about, you know, uh, my life. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the fact, do you, do you really feel engaged by life? Do you feel like it's got a purpose and you're directed? Or are you just living it? Uh, if, if you've got that sense, though, that there's this emptiness or alienation out there, uh, like almost like a, 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 you know, an emptiness that mm -hmm. can't be filled by the usual things, uh, the, the, the sorts of things that get you to binge watch television or something. Uh, the, the, the main thing t to me would be you need the Holy Eucharist. You might say, oh, Spitzer, you're just jumping to conclusions. You know, I might need an extra scotch or something. I don't need the Holy Eucharist. But in point of fact, I think you need the Holy Eucharist. And uh, I'm not your personal physician or psychiatrist here, but I'm just trying to say as a spiritual right. person is, I have found in my own life, and I have seen it time and time and time again with the people that I have counseled, they who have drifted from the Holy Eucharist eventually get to a point of malaise and emptiness, loneliness and alienation that they never felt 
when they were still actively engaged in the church, mm -hmm. receiving the Eucharist, receiving that sacrament of confession. I'm telling you, sacrament of reconciliation, you look at it and you go, ah, it's difficult, I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. If you do do it though, if you face the facts and you do the difficult thing, right, and you just make it, you know, a, a real concerted effort to do it, make a time with the priest and say, I'm gonna do it and do it. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and get back into the church with a good confession. I'm telling you, you're gonna feel differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't mean just on the, the level of feelings. It's you're also going to be a different person. You're going to feel a sense of purpose and fulfillment, a sense of dignity and a sense of hope that you didn't feel when you were not receiving those graces. Mm -hmm. It's hard to describe when you're not feeling it because uh, you know you you might feel the emptiness, but it only comes at you in these little poignant moments, right? It only comes at you when you're sometimes you're just looking in the mirror, you're combing your hair, whatever you're doing, or you're you're uh, you know you're just sitting there in a family gathering, or sometimes when you just feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I. I you know, I think I just got to eat and drink right. and be merry, you know, because the emptiness is so profound right. you, that you can't fill the, the, the pit, you know, or, you know, I'm just out of kilter with the whole universe. But when you know, those little poignant moments, as St. Augustine would tell you, pay attention. Mm -hmm. That means you're on drift. And I'll tell you something, being on drift is not a good thing because you're kind of lulled by the evil spirit, lulled into a deeper and a deeper drift. And eventually you content yourself with sort of living in the malaise, living in the emptiness, living in the loneliness. And, and you know, you say, well, wait a minute. Well, what happens to those people who decide to live in the loneliness? Just for your own uh, purposes, I'm not saying this is happening because you, you, you right. may belong to that uh, other church and you may be okay. But I will tell you this though, when you think about it, um, just see if you get part of uh, that increased depression and anxiety. This is what the American Psychiatric Association uh, aligns with non-religious affiliation. And I know you are not non-religious, but just see if you see these signs that are associated with non-religious affiliation. Depression increase, anxiety increase, desire for increased substances. Mm -hmm. That could be just alcohol. So, you know, I, I, I like to have a glass of wine at night. Now I'd like to have five glasses of wine at night, mm -hmm. you know, and so forth. Or, you know, the idea of increased, um, uh, you know, aggressivity, antisocial aggressivity. Also, the um, uh, definitely the feelings of malaise and right. emptiness and, um, it, well, I, you know, sometimes even uh, suicidal contemplation. So if those things are part of what you are feeling more intensely or more frequently, mm -hmm. then I would say shift, right. go back, do that confession, go and receive the graces of the Holy Eucharist. I can guarantee, it, you might not have an immediate effect, but you right. will have a definite qualitative change in your life and it will only go upward from there because you're not just connecting more deeply with the Lord who gave you his body and blood, but also you're separating yourself right. from your enemy, the evil spirit. And the worst, worst thing that can ever happen to the evil spirit 
is confession and the Holy Eucharist. Right. That's why they're required. Every time an exorcism is performed, if a person has done a good confession and is beginning to receive the Eucharist frequently, then the exorcism right. can uh, really right. be uh, accelerated and, it, and it right. becomes and I would much think, more viable. And I would think so, too, because I just mm -hmm. wanted to get to our topic, uh, you would also think well, Taylor, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman, but I mean, if they're open at some level to watching this show and listening to your thoughts on these things, uh, what's the next step of, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're worried about making your mother feel better, I mean, why don't you just go to church mm -hmm. once in a while or go to a Sunday mass yeah. with her uh, and so she feels yeah. better. Uh, and then maybe you might find yourself yeah, and if you've been away for being a while. open uh, to uh, and finding mm -hmm. that there's a lot more openness on your part, or maybe that's what you're afraid of. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree. Just start going to church right. is a great thing. You don't have to go to confession right away. But the reason I say that is because right. confession's the clean break. And I always use those focus uh, conferences as my primary example because, uh, let's face facts, you get those 7,000 kids and they all go to confession and they have a radically different view of life after than they did before. Things have changed. The momentum has changed. They have literally broken with the evil spirit and they are on the road, you know, to, with the Holy right. Spirit. And it's so palpable. You cannot come down the elevator the next day after the confessions and not feel right. the difference. Uh, that's in that community. I, I was just overwhelmed crowd, by right? it. The weight off the crowd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. It's okay, really true. Speaking of that, in the Moral Wisdom of the Catholic mm -hmm. Church, on page 22 at the bottom, mm -hmm. after we kind of talk about the teachings of being systematically violated, dealing with individuals, marriages, society, and culture, one of the things you talk about is divorce rates and sexual violence have skyrocketed in the last 30 years. Our country is increasingly divided and played by social unrest, and our young people are filled with sense of depression and angst, which is what you just talked about. In fact, uh, I saw an article, yeah. might bring it up in the future, about people now having divorce parties uh, because uh, I guess, uh, you know, yeah. trying to make light of some horrible situation. So why are yeah. we seeing so much of that? Well, I think, uh, you know, the sexual revolution that preceded all of this, uh, which goes back to Masters and Johnson, certainly uh, who physicalized and uh, in many ways mechanicalized sexuality uh, that uh, was highly problematic but the real um, uh, problem lies at you know let's face it when the birth control pill was uh, issued and when it was approved that everything changed uh, in the United States around the whole area of sexual fidelity now some people of course uh, in the culture were applauding this as being uh, a real moment in sexual freedom but just to let people know that what happened and what some uh, psychologists had been predicting would happen did happen, and that was that sexual violence would increase. And sexual violence did increase. When you have a, you know, a factor, the, the, I think the, the rape um, uh, percentage uh, went up by five times uh, over, I think it was a 30-year period uh, from the time that the birth control um, you know, uh, freedom uh, had been uh, permitted. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you see forcible rapes going up uh, a matter of five times. You see uh, sexual violence going up uh, by a factor of four times. You, I forget what all of the statistics are. I have to review them. Mm -hmm. But also you even see sexual harassment going up uh, by a huge number as well. And so it's pretty much clear 
that when the culture decided to liberate themselves sexually, you weren't just going to get these websites that are promoting uh, sexual infidelity with, um, you know, outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. Now you have websites that promote it inside of marriage. So, you, you know, if you just need to uh, have sexual relations with a, another partner besides your spouse, uh, come to this website over here. And you look at that and you go, wow, uh, is this going to do any good for us? No. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, the number of marriages have plummeted. Uh, in the culture. The number of, uh, I mean, the amount of divorce has increased to the point of 50 percent uh, in, in the country. And, and uh, you know, so the overall difference with the lowering of marriages and the increase of divorce, of course, we've got, you know, a, almost a shifting of two-thirds mm -hmm. uh, in the, the, the married population. Um, that uh, stays married uh, for more than six years. So it's like, uh, uh, it's, it's so incredible that it threatens not only the family, and it, it's obviously going to threaten the family, but when you threaten the family, who's really being threatened is the kids. Because no matter what the propagandists say, Divorce really adversely affects the right. kids. Mm -hmm. It uh, adversely affects them emotionally, no question about that. And in, in also, it can also affect them uh, many times in their ability to interact with the law. Now, that happens more with boys than with girls, that uh, boys become a little bit more um, um, uh, uh, anti um, uh, uh, legal. They, they have a hard time fitting in with the legal structures, with any authority structure. They well, have a harder time with employment, etc. So a lot this of times is a, another an big... Because there's an absent father and there's not that stronger yes, person to absolutely. You know, control what's going on, right? That's right. And so you... Absolutely. And so you can see that this has been a disaster area overall. I mean, sexual liberation, uh, yes, it was sexual liberation, but it has been a killing of marriage, a killing of the children who are what is now called the children of divorce, mm -hmm. uh, and their emotional stability, their capability to interact with uh, social, civic, and societal organizations. And, and uh, then on top of all of that, um, you know, the, uh, the killing of the family is a destabilization uh, of the culture itself, mm -hmm. probably explaining why people turn to very superficial things like identity politics uh, to replace true moral values. Because where do you get your moral values from? Right. You get it most definitely from the family. Where do you get your religious values from? Most definitely from the family. Mm -hmm. Where do you then get that, what I would call, that solidification, that stabilization, not only of your psyche, your emotional life, but also of your spiritual life and your moral life. Let's face it, a moral compass, it, you know, it, can, it obviously affects your emotional life. In fact, the whole of moral wisdom of the Catholic Church shows this indisputably. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the key factor, though, is that without a moral compass, mm -hmm. your interaction with society is not just going to be less productive. It's likely to be destructive, a negative. Mm -hmm. And that's a bad thing. And we're promoting it.
And yes, of course, are we surprised that over 10 years there was an increase in 23% in youth homicides? I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. Destabilization of the family, I'm not surprised at all. Am I surprised that uh, with respect to girls, you have almost, uh, in 20 years, a 200% increase in the suicide rate uh, for young girls? No, I'm not surprised. Destabilization of the family. And, and of course, absentee fathers, it affects girls just as much as it affects boys, but it affects them differently. Um, and so you can see exactly what's going on there. So, you know, my, my mm -hmm. thought is, I don't want to be haranguing people about uh, all of this, but what I'm trying to say is we need to really examine where we have come with respect to sexuality in this culture. And I'm not talking about being a prude or not being a prude or being church lady or not being church lady. Skip all the propaganda. Right. Let's just start and say, has this so-called sexual revolution been good for us? No. It's not been good for us in our individual lives, I, which I will prove later in the book. Um, it's been horrible for our individual emotional health, spiritual health, and relational health, and marital health. It's just killing it. But it's not just killing our individual lives. It's also killing our um, family lives. It's killing our families. It's killing the children of those divorced families. And the children, of course, of cohabitating cult, uh, um, uh, couples, they are much more emotionally, uh, you know, less stable than the children of real families. Uh, you, you can say, oh, marriage doesn't make any difference. Oh, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. It makes a big difference to the children of those families. And so you then say, okay, well, um, uh, wh where do we go from here? Well, I think we need to have discussions uh, instead of discussions about how to further liberalize sexuality within the culture, about how to further advance the cause of abortion within the culture, why don't we have some discussions in academe? Mm -hmm. Why don't we have some discussions <coughs> within our uh, social political establishment? Of course, through our churches, that would be wonderful. But why don't we have some earnest discussions <clears throat> about what we can do to try and at least validate sexual fidelity as something important and as a, val as a value? Why does every TV program practically have to be, you know, doing the opposite, right. just undermining all these uh, sexual mores. People think sexual mores, why, you know, what, what does it harm you? It harms all of us. It harms our families. It harms our children. It harms us individually. Of course there's harm. We, and I wrote this book because I just wanted to see it writ large. Look at these secular surveys. These are not Spitzer surveys. These are not church surveys. Mm -hmm. These are secular studies from universities, archives, and general psychiatry. They tell the story. And as you look at these things, you can see that the trending that we have mm. on sexual morality, and you can, don't call it morality then, just call it sexual fidelity, if that you know, gets the, the dialogue going. But we need to do something to rekindle the value of sexual fidelity. Can I reverse the birth control pill? Of course I can't. But I certainly think well, we need as a now, culture. I mean, it's basically going just over the counter. Oh, absolutely. So. I mean, it's just like, what the heck? You know, I mean, there's nothing you can do there. But on the other hand, 
why don't we try in our families, through our churches, through our social institutions, and yes, uh, supposedly objective academia, let's try to revitalize mm -hmm. well, what was the good side about sexual fidelity. What good did it do for us as individuals? What good did it do for our emotional, relational, and marital health? What good did it do for our families? What good did it do for the children of those families? Children of those stable families have very, not only do they feel the, the strong emotional bond and the strong emotional intimacy uh, with their parents and their brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. but also at the same time, they get that strong stability of not just being esteemed, but above all, being loved, valued as a person, not just valued for the objective qualities or grades or uh, athletic abilities that they can demonstrate, that's esteem ability, but the love ability that they so desperately need. And it's there, that, you know, when you've got those strong, that strong sense of personhood and individual dignity and being loved, that you can love out of that. That you can make a strong family and relationship and great kids in the future. It's lost, but we have to regain it and we have to really start trying as a culture through all these institutions, right? Because the culture is constituted by uh, churches are a huge part of culture, but so also is our academic establishments and our schools. That's a huge part of culture. Schools should reinforce the goodness of sexual fidelity. This, my, this whole book, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, one big proof, a big, huge statistical proof that sexual fidelity is really, really good for us as individuals, for us spiritually and emotionally, relationally and maritally. It's good for marriages, it's good for the culture, it's good for our society, and we don't have to turn to identity politics anymore to fill in the vacuum for what used to be good common sense morality that led to love, genuine stabilizing mm -hmm. good love that proves the lovability and the unique goodness and transcendence and lovability of the other. And that's what we want. That's, that's going to make for a healthy, stable society. You know, just saying, you know, to people, hey, we're going to treat you with greater dignity. Empty rhetoric. This is, right. you need the love of family and the love of friends. And, you know, being right. around those friends that meet with your friends who share your values and just having that sense that my parents' friends are like uncles and aunts to me. They're part of my family. And because they love me, not just because they're hanging around with me. They love me and they esteem me as lovable and that clearly is going to make for a much right. better culture and society. If we don't start doing this soon, if we don't start getting back some defense of uh, real sexual fidelity and why that's important and how it can really help our culture. Uh, we can do it in the name of Jesus Christ. We can do it in the name of secular so societies and studies. Whatever way we want to do it, we got to do it because if we don't, I think our culture's right. just going to fall apart at the seams. Absolutely. And that's going to be a terrible right. travesty. And if you wonder why those shows feature what they do, you should meet some of the people who are writing them and producing them and it would answer most of your questions for you. So, Father Spitzer, yeah. if, you, if you'd like, if you'd give us your blessing on the way out the door, it sounds like we could really oh. use it oh. this week. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. 
and may the good Lord who has taught us what true love is and the true love of children and the true love of our friends, may that good Lord who tells us this familial-based loving relationship is the key to loving in the world, to the healing of the world, to the unity of an identity of peoples, may that good Lord bless you with a greater and greater sense of that love through the faith that you have in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. And of course, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available through our religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. We also have a continuation of next week's topic, as Father indicated. He was just getting started there, so there's much more ahead. And we also have a bookmark, I know, this weekend, The Cause for the Canonization of Pope St. John Paul II's Parents. Uh, and uh, why he is a saint in the life of faith of Pope John Paul II in the case for that canonization. That's the title of the book, Monsignor Slavomir Oder was the interview. Very interesting uh, take on the Pope and his parents and, and the importance of family, as we can see, as Father Spitzer just said. Faith of our fathers, again, this EW10 original movie is a riveting story of a Catholic priest defending the faith against 19th century English persecution and the Irish community that seeks to protect him. See it tonight. Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Yes, unfortunately, preempts us. And again, Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. But it's a must-see. you got to see it. It's a wonderful program produced in cooperation with our friends in Ireland. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time when we re-enter Father Spitzer's universe. See you.